made USAA insurance for veterans like James. When he found out how much USAA was helping members save, he said, It's time to switch. We'll help you find the right coverage at the right price. USAA. What you're made of, we're made for. Restrictions apply. Making my Welcome to Transistory, the inclusive women's history podcast with a different theme every week, hosted by me, Brianna Hacker, and my friend, Claire Thomas. That's me. Welcome back, guys. Uh, This week's theme, we were feeling kind of witchy, so we're going to be discussing uh, female witches from history. Yes, it's going to be awesome. Yes. Um, Brie, how has your week been? Well, speaking of that, (laughs) um, we apologize for the super long break in between this episode and the last one. Um, Claire and I both hit rough patches. Yes. And uh, (laughs) free ad for Open Path. But we, uh, openpath.com, I think it is, something Mm -hmm. like that. Google it. (laughs) So we both kind of picked up therapists and uh, we're both doing better. Yes. And uh, yeah, so. Needed a little break. Needed a break. And we took it, damn it. Yes, we did. We and did we, it well. we're sure that you all understand. Yeah. Yep. We needed a little mini staycation and we're finally feeling better and feeling witchy. Yeah. <laughs> Coming so, back strong. Yeah. So this week was actually pretty good for me. Um, saw my therapist for the second time. Um, awesome. And then uh, just kind of made sure to kind of take it easy. Um, yeah. Which was good. Yes. How was your week? My week's been, um, it's been good. It's been busy. I started, along with therapy, I started a exercise class. We do it outside. So I've been like getting up at an ungodly early hour in the morning and working out. Um, and then like going to work with you and, uh, then going to my second job some afternoon. So it's been busy, but, um, you know, in a, in a good way, it's, I'm keeping myself occupied. And then this weekend it's today's Sunday, but this whole weekend, I mean, I've been a slug, <laughs> a slug. I think I left my house once to get, to pick up Chinese food. Like, and I've watched probably eight movies in the last 36 hours. But that sounds like an amazing weekend. Yes, it it is. It was, and it is. Um, I'm feeling only semi-human though, but that's okay. Um, that's all right. I got a mimosa in hand. So speaking of Brie, what are you drinking this week? I am drinking a mos- Moscato de Asti. Oh yes, one of your faves. It is my favorite one. Mm. Lovely. It's like drinking apple juice. It's amazing. So we're both on the wine today. Nice. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers to that. Ugh. All right, guys. Oh, you forgot something. What? This is our first episode recording with a new little friend in oh Claire's my apartment. god my cats that's right oh so yes i also on top of everything else that has, that's been going on in the last few weeks i got a cat which brie is probably so thankful i'm not looking at adoption sites anymore <laughs> um it finally happened but yeah I, I adopted a little kitten she's well she's almost eight months now she, um still kitten yeah, that is a kid. She's acting like it. She like she just 
attacks my face. Just uh, like she'll be sitting next to me on the couch. You can tell when she she'll like get into play mode all of a sudden. Her eyes will get huge and she'll look <laughs> up at you. And within a millisecond, you just have claws mm. in your face. But no, she's adorable. Half Siamese, half they said tortoise shell or something. I'm sure that's a cat. Yeah, um, and she's mm. she's great. I named her Margot. So. Me so and Margo. you might hear Margot in the background, and she's adorable, so feel blessed if you do. Yeah, we locked her in the living room, so she might get pissed halfway through this episode and start clawing through my door. We'll, we'll see. Yeah. We'll see. Gives us something to look forward to. Yeah, I need to sneak, like, CBD into her cat food or something. Just <laughs> knock her out. Take her down and out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, That's what my mom always used Dimatap for. Really? <laughs> Take the kids down and out. I know, yeah, I had a friend whose mom, like, used to give them Benadryl at nighttime. Oh, so, yeah. Yeah. I mean... Sometimes parents need a break. That's true. I mean, hey, it's better than shit back in, what, the 20s? They were probably giving their kids heroin-laced whiskey when they were teething. Who knows? <laughs> is so that true. a thing that happened? For, you know? Um, so Benadryl is... While their parents went and did a bump that the doctor <laughs> gave them? Yeah. yeah. Everything's their good. Their weight loss... Aid, supplement, whatever. Also known as Coke. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, Benadryl's pretty innocent yeah. in comparison. Um, all right. Well, thank you guys for sticking with us and coming back, meeting us where we are yes. um, after our much-needed break. Uh, we're going to get right into it. Okay, Claire, I think you've got the first story this time. Okay. All right. Well, then I will hit you guys with... My lady, so I'm covering this week a woman by the name of Lori Cabot. Have you ever had heard of Lori Cabot? This is new. Okay, so Lori is, she's known as the official witch of Salem, Massachusetts. And oh she's God. still alive. She's the official. The official witch. I, the, um, I have it here in my notes, but at some mm. point, I think in the 70s or 80s, the mayor of Salem Gave her that honorary title, the official witch of Salem. Well, they owe witches. They owe witches they, a lot in Salem. They need to do more than just name them the official witch, you know. Um, but it's a step in the right direction, you know. Baby steps. So, Lori Cabot, she was born March 6, 1933, as Mercedes Elizabeth Kiersey. And she was born in California. And then... With her family moved to the Boston area when she was teenage age. Um, and in her teenage years, she developed a strong interest in studying the occult, witchcraft. Um, and sh- sh- this was fostered while reading at the Boston Public Library, which I guess her she and her family lived close enough to the library that she frequented it and read up on the occult and everything. And so... Lori grew up in Boston, and then in her adulthood, before moving to Salem, she was still living in the north end of Boston Mm -hmm. and was a struggling divorcee, uh, raising two daughters at the time. It was the the late 60s. She was still hesitant at that time to declare that she was a witch, you know, outwardly declare that. Um, But she did dress the part. She wore black robes, pentagram necklaces. But because of the time, because it was the late, you know. It sounds like she was like, I'm not going to say I am, but you look at me. Right. Look at me. Look at me right now. And I guess she she kind of like, 
she, you know, snuck by, you know, without saying like, oh, I'm a witch. She kind of was grouped into the hippies, you know, that counterculture. She's kind of towed the line. You know? Right. Exactly. So anyway, so she's living in Boston. Uh, and then one day, and this is a, I guess I'd, I had never heard this, but this is a pretty infamous story. One day, Molly, one of her cats, uh, got stuck up 50 feet up in a tree. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Which I, I didn't know that was actually a thing that happened, you know? Yeah. No, you see it in comics and cartoons, but like. And that's it. But her cat actually got stuck up in a tree. <laughs> and so Molly's stuck in this tree. Lori's freaking out. She calls the local police and they're like, mm. okay, just wait, you know. The cats didn't eventually come down. They, like, didn't give a shit, which I can't really blame them. I mean, if you're a cop working in Boston, you, yeah, you know. You probably get shit to do. Yeah. <laughs> but, so Lori wasn't having that. After three days, the cat is still in this fucking tree. Three days? Three days. Jesus yeah. Um, and Lori was like, all right, that's that's enough. I mean, I guess she could have gotten a ladder or something. But what she instead, what she did, and, you know... Lori didn't move that way. So what she did was she called the Salem News and said to whoever the person was who answered the phone, my cat is stuck in a tree. I'm a witch. The cat is my familiar. And I want someone to come get my cat out of this tree. Or else. (laughs) Right? Yeah. They were like, oh, shit. We don't want to get on her bad side. So she immediately, you know, received a lot of attention. Um, Several rescue cars showed up, got Molly off the tree, but then also a photographer showed up, the mayor showed up, um, media outlets showed up, and um, because of all of this attention, she started doing local interviews, and she came out as a witch. And So um, she got put on the map. Yes. Not only did she get shit done, but now she is like, I am out as a witch. Yep. Look at me. I'm amazing. Yeah. she She knew how to work it, you know, for... She knew how to make it work in her favor. And because of all of this, um, all of the press, she was able to raise some money and open the city's first witch shop called the Witch Shop in 1970. Um, And also she, both of her daughters that she had at the time, she raised them as witches as well. That's awesome. Yeah. Continue in the footsteps. Exactly. So, um... Yeah, so 1970s opens the witch shop. She's known throughout Salem as a witch, um, a practicing witch. Um, She also, you know, has been throughout the decades outspoken about how witches are represented in pop culture. Um, An example of this was when The Witches of Eastwick came out in, Mm -hmm. that was 86. Have you seen that movie? I have not. It's so good. You would love it. Jack Nicholson, Cher... Jack, Michelle you Pfeiffer, got me. Jack Nicholson. Yeah. Jack Nicholson. Okay. So my friend Becca is obsessed with Jack Nicholson. Um, even like now he's like probably almost in his eighties and she'd still like throw down, you know, um, she's crazy about him. So well, who isn't he's Jack Nicholson? It, yeah. He, he has a thing about him and you would love him in this movie. Cause he's like, he plays this, I think he, it's like he's supposed to be the devil, but he's like sexy and he seduces these three women. How is the devil not sexy? Yeah, I guess. I mean, he, he plays a sexy, seductive devil. But when they like eventually start backing off, he gets not sexy. He gets crazy, possessive and, you know, you see it. <laughs> Sounds like a guy. Dude. Yeah. 
Um, so when that movie came out, Lori um, said, here are three women who have nothing better to do because they're so frustrated sexually that they get involved with witchcraft. <laughs> <laughs> she then says they're not witches. If anything, they're weakened Satanists. They don't do one witchy thing in the whole film. So I just had to include that because I thought that was really interesting that she would comment on the movie. But I, I can see it. I mean, yeah, if I mean, you... You gotta, you gotta make sure that nobody's, you know, making fun of your shit. Right. Um, and so then in the early 90s, she actually started offering her services to the local Salem police. Um, with the first major case she assisted on being the disappearance of Martha Brailsford. Um, and this is crazy. So, you so know. So she's the official witch of Salem at this point? Um, so she became the official witch of Salem in 1977 by the governor at the time, Michael Dukakis or Dukakis. I think it's Dukakis. Dukakis I know he ran right. for president. Okay. So Dukakis. Yeah. Okay. So it's the same guy. Wow. Okay. Um, yeah. So Dukakis named her Salem's official witch gotcha. in 77. Um, so yeah, this is a while after that. So she, yeah, she is officially the witch She's of Salem. She's just stacking on titles. Detective <laughs> yeah. official witch of Salem, mm-hmm. Lori Cabot. Exactly. Um, and so when I was, you know, researching her, yeah, like anyone could declare that they're a witch, come out as a witch, but it's like, I, I need to see that you are a witch, you know? Yeah. But when I was reading this the story of the disappearance of Martha Brailsford, I was like, holy shit. Okay, so she she actually is a witch. I can't wait to hear it. Okay, so I'll get into it. So this is the first major case Lori Cabot assisted on. On July 12th, 1991, there is a woman named Martha Brailsford um, who went sailing with her friend and neighbor, um, Tom Maimoni. They went sailing and then only Tom came back, Okay. He, his story was that a rope wave hit the sailboat, Martha fell overboard, said he searched all night for her, never found her, um, you know. A rogue wave. A rogue wave, yes, off the coast of Massachusetts in July. Like, okay, <laughs> sure, dude. Um, but so he says, I searched for her, never found her. Um, the police looked for her for six days in the bay where he said they were, but they found no sign of Martha. Um and obviously, they're suspicious of Tom. They, How could you not be? Yeah, that story blows. Right. <laughs> and, like, they, he didn't tell anyone that she fell overboard. It wasn't until people questioned him that he even said anything. Okay. So, then, like, yeah, he's on the radar. You should be arrested on the spot, honestly. Yeah. And, yeah, he didn't contact police. He didn't radio authorities mm-hmm. while he was on the boat. Nothing. And his, his only excuse was that I didn't tell anyone because I was panicked. I'm like, okay, well, you know. Anyway, so... That that defense always works out, by the way. Right. (laughs) So, Lori asked for... Once she got involved, because they couldn't pin anything on Tom. They didn't have a body. They had nothing to work with. Um, So, once Lori got involved, she asked for the name of the missing person, where the missing person lived, and the date of birth. So, she gathered that information. And then she went into this relaxed frame of mind which she Lori calls the alpha state and according to her it's a state where when she's in it events from the past can come to her with stark clarity um so it sounds like like a a trance yeah Yeah. yes um so while she's in this alpha state she 
sees, she reports that she sees Tom on the boat making sexual advances towards Martha. Totally easy to believe. Right. I mean, on a boat too. I don't know if you, there's this episode of this one show, It's Always Sunny. Have you ever watched It's Always Sunny? No, but I've seen a similar something in a movie, I think. But yeah. yeah. And gets... they talk about like, you don't take a girl out on a boat, you know, like she's oh, nowhere Jesus to go. Christ. But it's, yeah. That's so gross. I know. Um, so Lori in her trance sees Tom making sexual advances. Martha rejects them. He then, she sees him dragging her to the side of the boat and hitting her in the head with an object. Um, Tom in the vision then proceeds to put weights on Martha's hips, uh, and tie an anchor to her feet and tossing her overboard. Um, yeah, so she sees all of this and then. Lori doesn't just see that happen, but she also describes where they could find Martha's body. So, oh, I've got like my hair I know, out. isn't it insane? It's amazing. Yeah, so she told the cops her body was still anchored underwater near a small offshore like island with a lighthouse in view. And shortly after, which is very precise, it is right. Yeah. It really is. And shortly after, there was this uh, lobster fisherman. Minding his own business, and he he found Martha's body. It got caught in his fishing net. Oh and... my god! Can you imagine that? No, pulling not up, you're at like all. Trying to get lobsters. Yeah, you're, you're like, just oh like, my god. God, I can't no. do the Boston goddamn lobster. No, is that? I don't know. I don't know if that's, that's amazing. <laughs> that's lobster, papika, papika. I got, I don't even know. That almost sounds, anyway. Coffee. So, it's coffee. Is that, okay. No, that's New York. I know. I think that's like Brooklyn. Okay, so we can't do that. Anyway, he's, he's sounding adorable with his little New England accent, just pulling up his lobster net, um, finds her body in the net with an anchor tied to her foot, diving belt around the waist, weighted down, and with a lighthouse in view, just as Lori predicted. Oh my God. Yeah. So then, um, you know, obviously news gets back to shore that her body's been found. Um, Tom goes on the run and no one can find him. Well, he's got, yeah. But I mean, he's got like ultra witch on his case. Like, dude has no chance. I know. He's probably like, he's probably shitting his pants. If I knew there was a witch helping the police, I'd be like, oh shit. They just told him exactly where to find the body? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. No, you Uh don't have a chance, buddy. No. And so he goes on the run. They can't find him. So then they ask Lori Cabot again, you know, help us find Tom. We need to find this motherfucker. So she goes back into her alpha state. Um, I'm sure she collected, like, name, date of birth, um, address. Yeah, same stuff. Um, So she goes into her trance. In the vision, she sees Tom shaving in a cabin. And since that he was on his way um, to cross into Canada, he was close to the Canadian border. But she didn't only stop there. She also um, wanted to make sure that he couldn't get into Canada. Uh, So she offered to perform a binding spell to ensure, like, he would, like, make mistakes. Like, something would happen that would basically obstruct that border crossing. Holy shit. I know. So three days later, in a small town near the Canadian border, the police arrive at a cabin uh, neighbors had called the police because they saw a car they didn't recognize with the lights on and they knew the owner of the cabin and they knew the owner wasn't in town. So they see the suspicious vehicle and call the cops. Um, there are four signs of entry into this cabin and Tom is 
they find Tom in the cabin. Shaving. He he had a sh- he had shaved his mustache. Oh my god! Yes, isn't that insane? That's nuts. I know. Uh, and then so he's arrested. He was found guilty of second degree murder, sentenced to life in prison, and died in prison in t- 2017. As um, he should. Yes, and there was there was no evidence necessarily that the binding spell had worked, but he had you know made you know he had left the car in a very obvious place. He hadn't thought about neighbors seeing it and thinking it was slightly odd. Tur- turned all the lights on. Yeah, turned yeah. the lights on. Like, didn't leave early enough in the morning to, like, get out of there while it was still dark. Like, you know, so we don't really know, but... Um, no, it worked. I, I think so. I'm, I'm saying it worked. Yeah. I think so. I mean, yeah, he's just, you know, chilling in a cabin, you know. Well, he's a guy button. on the run trying to make it to Canada, but he decided, you know, take it easy. Right, yeah. Get into Canada. Yeah. So, um, but that... Crazy enough, that isn't the only case that um, Lori Cabot assisted on. There was oh also God. another disappearance, yes, which we will get to right after this quick ad break. Cliffhanger! <laughs> Stick with us, guys. All right, welcome back, guys. Welcome we're, back. We're in the middle of discussing Lori Cabot, the official witch of Salem, Massachusetts. Uh, so we just discussed, Brie, how she assisted in finding the body of Martha. Creepily accurately. Yeah, Martha Brailsford. Yes. With creepy accuracy. Uh, now we're going to get into the other case, the notable case she assisted on. Oh my gosh. And that is the still unsolved disappearance of Gail Knowlton. So... On January 21st, 1992, 33-year-old Gail Knowlton left her Salem apartment to go work at the Sears Credit Bureau. Mm-hmm. Uh, she never arrived at work and was never seen again. Oh, wow. Yes. And, you know, some people could say, just based on those facts, you know, it could have just been a runaway. It could have been she left with a man. It could have been a number of things. However, she left behind... Her paraplegic husband, his name was Edward, and a 16-month-old son. Yeah, see, you have to, like, look at the person to, like, figure out, like, how possible it is they ran away. Right. that's not a runaway. No. And especially, you know, a 16-month-old son. I'm not a mother, but I can... I just feel like a mother would not leave a 16-month-old and a paraplegic husband. As as a parent, 100%. I would never leave my daughter. Right. Um, so that morning, neighbors reported hearing arguments from the apartment and other suspicious activities happening shortly before she vanished. Um, and this is interesting. So at the time she disappeared, Gail was on probation for incidents involving her children from a previous marriage. Um, it's not known if this is related to her disappearance and there was no information I could find or available as to why she was on probation, what happened so we there. Don't know what the incidents we are? don't ha- no, we okay. don't know what happened there. Um so anyway, so she's just gone. She's gone, just like disappeared, vanished out of nowhere. Uh so Lori gets involved. She's requested again. Of course. Why <laughs> yeah, not? why not be? Um she's given again the name, age, location, and time of her disappearance. Um, goes into her alpha state, and she envisions Gail, that morning, running into an acquaintance just outside of her door, 
um, and this acquaintance offers her a ride, Lori then sees Gail being happy to go with him, so it's a male. Um, right. And then, but as they're driving, the man starts teasing her with a knife that he had on him. Oh, Jesus Christ. This I know. Is, oh, it's awful. I know. And Gail does not like this, no. um, obviously. And then the man takes her to Dolly Comp Road in Mount Washington, New Hampshire, and orders Dale out of the car. Now, I don't know geographically how far that is, but, I mean, Mount Washington, New Hampshire to Salem, Massachusetts, I'm assuming, is a decent drive. They're tiny states up there. Yeah, I don't know. I know. I should have... Well, it's definitely longer than it took to get to work. To get to the Sears Credit Bureau, yeah. So, um, he orders her out of the car, and then he proceeds to push her off a steep, steep cliff, oh. and then drives away. Uh, Lori believes that Gail's killer drove a dark-colored pickup truck... And may have been involved in drugs, um, but she definitely believes for sure that uh, he is an acquaintance of Gail's. Now, this was never solved. Um, Gail's body has never been found. Um, Apparently, you know, officers did go to that cliff area on Dolly Comp Road in Mount Washington, where Lori had said, where she had envisioned Dale being pushed off the cliff. Right. They never found anything. Um, you know, people still to this day think maybe she committed suicide or had just run away. Um, but yeah, unfortunately it's still not solved. Um, I definitely want to look into it more though. Um, unsolved cases really interest me. Well, yeah. You know, just in 91, like, yeah, that was, a decent amount of time, but still recent when you really think about it. It's 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I'm old. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, but the, I just, like, I want to know. I just want to yeah, know. Yeah. How could you know? kills me not knowing. That's amazing, though. Yeah. I, if I had to put my money on it, though, Lori's right. I, I, I believe her. Yeah. I fucking believe her. And she's still alive. She's old. Um, if she's older now. Let's see. If she was born in 33... Um, do you know math? Eight, 90? 80, 89. 89. Yeah, she's still alive though. And she Jeez. offers, um, she still, I looked it up. She still offers, um, classes over the phone, uh, readings over the phone. She did sell her witch shop in Salem, but, um, she still is practicing to this day. I bet um, you those are crazy expensive. Oh my God. They're, they are. They're like, I think a 30 minute, 30 minute or one hour session is over at 350 jeez I know. okay yeah but still it's it's with the official way you are so that. tempted aren't you oh my god i know <laughs> brain knows that i am very impulsive when it comes to spending large sums of money in one sitting so um however <laughs> so Lori founded the witches league for public awareness which was founded to defend the civil rights of witches everywhere um, as we already discussed, she was named Salem's official witch in 77 by the governor of Massachusetts at the time, Michael Dukakis. Um, and she states that her real goal in life has been to educate the public about witchcraft and dispel any rumors, uh, about the practice. Dispel. <laughs> <laughs> Is that how? It's close enough. Okay. Um, she's also the author of six books, uh, teaches various classes, wow. including at Harvard. She's taught classes at Harvard. Well, yeah, she's the official witch of Salem. Yeah. And she's been doing all of this for over 45 years. 
Yeah. And that, in a nutshell, is Lori Cabot. Mind blown. Like, oh my God. I know. It's it's insane. Going out She's to, a witch. Like, telling people where to find that body. Oh I my know. God. And then, like, the guy goes on the run. They're like, well, I mean, you're here already. You got anything? And she's like, I'll tell you where to find him. Yeah, exactly. I'll tell you where to find him. He's going to have a shaven face. He's going to be in a cabin near Canada. And sure enough. And I'll make sure that he doesn't make it. How about that? Yeah. <laughs> I hope she has, like, an enormous, like, a crazy expensive retainer fee. I oh, fucking yeah. would. Unless, I mean, you know. Unless you, I mean, brand awareness, you know. You gotta, yeah. Gotta get your name out. Yeah. All right, Brie, well, I'm excited to hear who you're covering this week. Awesome. Okay, well, we're going to take a short ad break, and then we are going to jump into my witchy people. People, okay. People. All right, well, we'll be right back. And welcome back, everybody. Uh, Welcome back. Today, I'm going to be discussing... Um, not one person, but a group of peace people that lasted a really long time. Ooh. And that is the Gali priests. And they were apparently a huge deal in Rome. Okay. Um, and I've studied Roman history for years and years and years and never heard of these people. Yeah, that is your thing. So today I am fixing that for not only myself, but anybody that listens. Hmm. Um. The Gali priests were a part of the cult of Sibyl and Attis, which originated in Phrygia, um, which is known today as Central Turkey. Okay. And what's um, Sibyl and Attis? We're going to get to that in just a second. Okay. I'm jumping the gun. Continue. The reason they had so many names was that they predated the Roman Empire by hundreds of years. The earliest evidence is around the 6th century BCE. Damn. Yeah. And may have outlasted it. Um, the latest intru- evidence for them is in the 5th century CE. Mm. So, I mean, huge, huge spread there. So, um, just like her followers, Sybil had many names over that time. Um, and it kind of depended on where you were. Um, the Greeks ended up making most of the names um, for Sybil. So, there's Mater Magna, Great Mother, Dindamine, Meter Megale. And my personal favorite, Mother of the Gods. So, yeah, she was definitely not like a lower-ranking deity. She was Mother of the Gods. Yeah. And she was a maternal goddess who was identified with the earth, nature, and fertility. Okay. And Addis was her first consort and her first follower and set the tone for her followers in many ways through the ways that he worshipped Sybil. Um, which we'll get to in just a bit. Uh, the cult of Sybil spread throughout the Mediterranean, where she was wor- worshipped throughout Greek-influenced areas and Greece itself. Um, she was very big in Alexandria. Mm. And during the Second Punic War, during which Hannibal had invaded Italy, ravaged the countryside, destroyed armies, um, a priest found a spot in the Sibylline text where an oracle had announced that if the sacred stone of Sibyl was moved from its home in Turkey to Rome, Italy would repel the invaders in its midst. So immediately Rome sends a delegation. They're like, we're bringing this shit over here. So, and it was big enough to let me know the exact date of arrival. So on April 12th, 204, 
the stone arrived at the Roman port of Ostia, Mm-hmm. And it was greeted with all honors and brought home the final stretch to Rome um, with this huge parade. There was this fanfare. It was amazing. And, of course, the Romans went on to win that war. Hannibal left Italy. So, so it worked. It worked. So the Romans embraced this other religion. Yeah, the Romans had a... Uh, habit of like absorbing religions and as long as that religion was the people of that religion were like praying for Rome's success they generally didn't care okay narcissists Um, yeah pretty much (laughs) um so whenever a new emperor ascended the throne every religion was expected to offer um sacrifices to whatever their deity was so that that emperor would you know receive that god's blessing but yeah they they kind of just assimilated religions as they came along. Okay. Um, And after the Second Punic War, Rome became the only great power in the Mediterranean, and Sybil got the credit for Hannibal being pulled away from Italy. Nice. Once it arrived at Rome, the cult of Sybil seems to have been something of a dual religion. Um, Her initial Phrygian, which is Turkish followers... Worshipped her with music, prophecy, sex, and by living on donations, Uh which sounds like a really fun religion. (laughs) Uh, The Romans preferred to worship her as they did all their other gods and goddesses with games and festivals and holy days. And there is a set time on the Roman calendar where she was worshipped during a festival known as the Megalesia. Oh, the Gali priests showed their devotion in one other way, and this is the way that got them onto this podcast. They lived as women, and a majority of them even castrated themselves. Oof. Which, I mean, early gender-affirming surgery right there. I hope they had a lot of alcohol. Like, what do you do for pain back in those days? Uh, lots of booze. Um, lots of booze. They had opium. Sterilization. Oh, opium. Yeah. Okay. Oof. Yeah, fuck me up and cut my... <laughs> yeah, I don't want to do that sober. No. Okay. Um, and for them, this included feminizing their voices, wearing women's clothing, styling their hair as women, and wearing makeup. Mm. Which, that's something a lot of transgender people do. Like, that's pretty mm-hmm. much early transgender to-do list right there. Right. And, of course, this appalled the Romans. Um, who had a massive focus on maintaining a masculine image. Right. Um, which proves even back then that uh, masculinity had a tendency to be fragile for a lot of people. Oh, yeah. But makeup's so fun. I know. They were just jealous. They knew they wanted to. They, they were like, I could have rocked that. I just don't yeah. have the They're courage. Like, oh, like that. Br- like, oh, if I contoured my face, my cheekbones would be popping. Yeah, <laughs> they knew they wanted to. And- Ugh. But because the Romans revered Sybil, they didn't yeah. do anything. They just yeah. kind of looked down on them. They didn't uh-huh. get it. Yeah. Um, Roman men viewed effeminacy as a disease that had to be fought at all times. Mm. The Romans viewed the Galli as un-Roman, which they were mostly from Phrygia, and referred to them as pathicus, which, trigger warning, this is a slur today too, faggot. Mm. And mollus, which uh, translates to softy. (laughs) 
and fake women. Fake women. Which people still try and say transgender women are today. So not much mm-hmm. has changed. Right. Um, and there were edicts that were put out by the emperors at various times preventing the Romans from joining the Gali or from castrating themselves for any re- reason because they did not want this to spread to Romans. Right. Which it still did some because we've always been there. I mean, how do you really know if, like, how are you making sure someone's not castrating themselves? Well, are the you same just thing walking trans- around lifting up togas? It's transgender bathroom laws, but Jesus. Roman version. Yeah. How are you, are you checking? Are you yeah. opening the stalls? <laughs> right. Um, the Romans partially accepted the Gali um, only because they didn't view them as Roman. They saw them as Phrygians or Easterners. Mm-hmm. Um, Roman men who were viewed as feminine were called Senatus or Canatus and were always looked down upon and uh, not seen as true Roman men. Massive air quotes. Mm, yeah. And this isn't to say that the great mother wasn't revered by Romans. They just didn't understand why she wasn't satisfied with games and festivals um, and were quite happy to let foreigners take on the mantle of the Gali priests. The Megalesia, also known as the Festival of Sybil, um, had uh, a certain day called the Day of Blood. And uh, in his description of the bloodletting rites during the Spring Festival, James Frazier writes, We may conjecture, though we are not expressly told, that it was on the same day of blood and for the same purposes that the novices sacrificed their virility. Wrought up to the highest pitch of religious excitement, they dashed the severed portions of themselves against the image of the cruel goddess. These broken instruments of fertility were afterwards reverently wrapped up. I know, right? And buried in the earth or in subterranean chambers sacred to Sybil where, like the offering of blood, they may have been deemed instrumental in recalling Addis to life and hastening the general resurrection of nature, which was then bursting into leaf and blossom in the sunshine. On the day of blood, the new Gali cast aside their masculine clothing forever. Which, the only reason I include that is so that there's, like, an idea of, like, what the process was. But obviously, uh-huh. uh, Mr. Frazier has his own negative hang-ups and is bringing his own um, biases to that. Well, it's, see, it sounds just kind of a very flowery way of saying, like, your body is a temple, you know? Oh, my God, yes. It's just like, shut the fuck up, you know? Yeah. And also, I mean, a lot of cis men don't understand transgender women mm-hmm. and don't understand why somebody would go through that. Right. And it's because we're not you. Yeah, it's, and it's they don't simple. have to understand what it would feel like to want that. No. But they should understand, oh, if you do want that, fucking go ahead. Exactly. It's not a hard thing. It's a pretty easy concept. but You think? Yeah. Um, there's a theory that the Senatus um, joined the Gali to re- reduce the amount of persecution they received. So, obviously, some Romans did end up being Gali priests, mm-hmm. and for embracing a permanent state of feminine subjugation, because that's how Romans saw it, <laughs> the Gallis were marginalized to the fringes of Roman society. They seemed to have converged in a subculture that protected them from the enmity of the majority. 
in the cult of civil, they were able to pursue their minority sexual interests without the ostracism they experienced in larger society. Cool. And so on that note, the Romans had a really interesting uh, view of sex. And sex with men wasn't looked down upon. Mm-hmm. It was like what position you were in that determined God. whether it was good sex or bad sex. Uh-huh. So if you're a bottom, then the Romans that's... saw you as the passive partner. And, and that's bad sex. That's super, super bad. <laughs> so that also includes like they never let the women ride them. There was no casual position because then you're the passive partner. No way. I'm dead serious. Are you serious? What? They they had their own. So it was just missionary forever or doggy. Yeah. Or just. They had their own really stupid hangups. And that is one. Um, (laughs) But no matter who a Roman man was fucking, as long as he was the top, it didn't matter. Okay. Interesting. Um, as long as if it was with a man, they were kind of expected to be discreet. Yeah. Um, but yeah, anybody who bottomed was feminine and weak, and that include both women and transgender women and just gay bottoms. Um, God, talk about a complex. My lord. And the golly, because one of the ways they worshipped was sex, and they were viewed as women, um... They were they had the same taxes levied on them as other female prostitutes. So very interesting. Uh-huh. Golly priestess slash sex worker. Yeah. Mm. Um and then you're gonna you might die at this name. But oh. Firmicus Maternus. <laughs> I'm just gonna give you a minute because uh-huh. damn Firmicus <laughs> Maternus? Yeah. What the hell? That's the name. So, so maternus is mother. Maternus. Something along those lines, yes. But what the fuck does firmicus mean? About the same. Oh my god, motherfucker. Firmicus maternus. No! Is it? Oh, I hope it is. I, okay. I'm going to say that. We're looking that up later. Firmicus maternus means motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, um, so tell me about firmicus maternus. So he was a contemporary. Um, So to get the Roman view on this, a little flavor. Mm -hmm. They say they are not men. They want to pass as women. Animated by some sort of reverential feeling, they actually have made this element air, which I'm not entirely sure what he's referencing there, Mm -hmm. into a woman. And because air is an intimate intermediary between the sea and sky, they honor it through priests who have womanish voices. Um, and then there is a bit of poetry. Um, I think it's Catalyst. Um, Haste you together, she priest, to Sybil's dense woods. <laughs> you vagrant herd of the Dame Dindamine. You who incline towards strange places as exiles. So yeah, it they were viewed very much as women. Mm-hmm. Um, despite the fact that Roman men didn't really, you know, get it. Um, and then Ovid, uh, Mm -hmm. said, don't torture your hair though with curling irons. Don't pumice your legs into smoothness. Leave that to mother Sybil's votaries. Uulating and chorus with their Phrygian modes. Real men should not primp their good looks. What? So I think that was kind of more of like a sissy's comment. 
Yeah. But if you're wondering how Roman women shave their legs. Oh my god, how? Pumice stones. Ew. That sounds painful. I mean, they still sell that shit today. Really? Yeah. So pumice stones, you just like kind of like rub. You rub it off. That just sounds painful. And so um, after the Emperor Constantine, obviously the Christians were in the foremost there. They denounced the Gali as pagans, just like every other god or goddess that wasn't um, Christian. Right. Except for the ones that they kind of melded into their belief system. Uh-huh. Um, and the Gali were also ridiculed by Christian authors for their effeminacy and castration. Um, the Gali were seen as a threat to the Christian patriarchy. It was a large, organized group of people who went against the order established by their god. So, again, very fragile masculinity. Yeah, Jesus. Um, and then in his book on, called The City of God, Augustine decried the followers of the mother of the gods, saying they couldn't be either true men or true women, which is what Christians still say today. Yeah. He later saw the Gali parading through the squares and streets of Carthage with oiled hair and powdered faces, languid limbs and feminine gait, <laughs> demanding even from the tradespeople the means of continuing to live in disgrace. In disgrace. So it sounds like he's just jealous. They're having a good time. Honestly, get over it, dude. Like, we can see you just... It's been you want to pumice your legs, too. It's been 2,000 years. You think yeah. you're going to get over it? No. Um, and as the Christians began to assume legitimacy, the followers of Sybil were known to wander the countryside asking for alms in return for dances, music, and prophecy, and they were seen as nomadic exiles by Christian Europe. Oh, nomadic exiles sounds actually very fun. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, like the Romani. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then there was, uh, what brought this to my attention was a uh, archaeology dig in England, and we will get into the details of that in just a second after a quick ad break. Ooh. And we're back. Welcome back. We've been discussing the Gali priest in a very specific and fairly modern find in England. Mm. Um, the grave of a Gali priest was found in the old Roman city of Cataractonium. And if I mispronounce that, sue me. <laughs> um, that is in the in northern Yorkshire. Yorkshire. And Yorkshire. I just butchered that. We really can't do accents. <laughs> um, this discovery was initially announced as a 20 to 25-year-old cis woman. Mm-hmm. It was only after the skeleton was analyzed in 2002 by Hillary E.M. Cool, which, <laughs> that's a name. Oh my God, I want that name. Um, that it was shown that she had been assigned male at birth. The items that she was buried with were all feminine. Mm-hmm. Um, a necklace, bracelets, and a braided anklet. And uh, it's definitely not the grave of a man, according to British burial practices. Right. Hillary E.M. Cool summed up the results by noting that very few skeletons are actually DNA tested, which is how they found out that this was a trans woman, mm-hmm. and are generally gendered by analyzing the items that they're buried with. So that blew my mind just reading that, mm-hmm. because there could be so many transgender women that have been 
kind of pigeonholed as like there's a pretty thing in that tomb she's a girl yeah she was born a girl and we know her whole history right so just bringing all these preconceptions and biases and yeah it's super cool we Mm -hmm. should start dna testing these people oh my god yeah and then in our response to the dig and the discussion lynn conway uh presented commented on a bbc report that called her the eunuch of cataric which they were saying she was male Mm -hmm. um and the substance of her comments was absolutely scathing. So I'm going to read it at length here. It is so sad when archaeologists naively obscure and inherently ridicule this girl's gender identity by calling her a cross-dressing eunuch. Such comments reveal their lack of understanding of human nature in the large and their lack of appreciation for how sophisticated some ancient civilizations were when accommodating gender vari- variations. Those who are knowledgeable about transgenderism and transsexualism will recognize that this person is not a eunuch, uh, nor is she a transvestite. Instead, this person was very likely an intensely transsexual girl who desperately sought and willingly underwent a voluntary emasculation surgery at a young age, probably in her early teens and then lived as a female priestess afterwards. Mm -hmm. Her elaborate burial upon her death and in her early 20s suggests that she was very much beloved and perhaps left behind a grieving lover or patron. Which was super sweet. Mm -hmm. Fuck yeah, Lynn. Um, And then uh, Eleanor Lieber, uh, in another response, said the modern characterization of transgender as a gender orientation has no matching fit in antiquity, but neither can one imagine that there were no individuals discontent with the sex of their body or with the norms of gender uh, dictated socially by their society. So, mm-hmm. yeah, take that. Yeah, I mean, we can debate whether to call these people transgender. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or, I mean, they aren't around to communicate what. But what we can do is accept the facts that we see. Yeah. And that is, this is a person uh, who was assigned male at birth, Mm -hmm. who decided to live their life at an early age, because this girl was only in her 20s, as a woman. Yep. So that is a transgender woman in my book. Yeah. Um, And as a last note, um, this has been an intensely difficult topic to research. Um, the Romans hated anything feminine that included the Gali, mm-hmm. and they only accepted their presence out of fear of angering a goddess. Mm-hmm. The only Roman exception I've been able to find was much later, um, and that was the Emperor Julian, who was a personal favorite of mine, mm-hmm. who considered the Gali's act of castration a sacred harvest. Okay. And then following that, the Christians despised the Gali for being pagans and for rejecting their male superiority, massive Mm -hmm. air quotes. And early scholars and scholars up until the last 20 years have uh, either shown disdain, um, lack of comprehension, um, just carried forward the Roman insulting stereotypes. So it's, it's been hard to find accurate information that's devoid of bias and there's been a lot of digging through um slurs and name calling and hatred 
to get here. Mm -hmm. So it's only in the last 20 years that Igali have begun to be understood as transgender women dealing with their dysphoria with an early gender-confirming surgery, mm -hmm. living together under the protection of their goddess, the Great Mother Sybil. Yes. And that is the Gali priests. Oh my God. So interesting. I'd never heard of the Gali. I mean, that's essentially a thousand years of a protected transgender priesthood. I know. That's insane to me. I can't believe I haven't heard of it. <laughs> me either. Yeah. But it just goes to show, you know, like. They talk about what they want to talk about. Right. When would we have heard about it? You yeah. know, me at my Catholic school growing up or you in, in my church. Protestant homeschool <laughs> environment. <laughs> yeah. You know. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Very, very, very cool. But it just shows like how no matter the society, transgender people or people of any gender orientation have always found a little way to carve out a niche and be mm -hmm. safe and be themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, they do what they have to do. To exactly. Stay safe. Which is an unfortunate you know, component. Current and, issue, yes. Right, right. Uh, well, guys, thank you so much for coming back to us after these last few silent weeks. And thank you for coming to our very witchy episode about our very witchy women. Yes. Um, we're going to be back next week. Yep, we've already got that one planned out. Yes, it's going to be a very fun topic. Thank 007. Oh, okay. Secret, well, secret Bree just said it out loud. You want to edit that out? No, no, no. <laughs> we'll see you back here next week for some sexy spy time. Yes. All right. Be good. And be you. Have a great Bye. week, everybody.